Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. As Omicron and Delta infections run wild across Canada and the U.S., many people tout its mildness. Like they've been saying, COVID is a flu all along. Who is speaking up for the vulnerable and the elderly they are destined to infect? Dr. Jennifer Bombush is my guest. She is speaking up for these people. And how about the nurses on the front lines? They've been silenced by administrators and unions, and now they're being told to wear an N95 mask only with approval when Omicron is so contagious. Nurse Paula Levecki joins me. Men now have one more compelling reason to get a COVID-19 vaccine. Doctors suspect the new coronavirus could make it hard to perform in the bedroom. And what are the most common New Year's resolutions, plus what yours need to be in a pandemic? The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Many people across this country, not the least of which are seniors and their families, seniors who live in long-term care homes, were disappointed and really, really upset to learn of the further tightening restrictions surrounding long-term care home residents by implementing air quotes, temporary measures amidst a surge in COVID-19 cases due to the Omicron variant. Uh, Did we not learn anything from a year and a half ago when seniors were locked down for such a long time? Joining me on the line to talk about this very critical public health issue is Dr. Jennifer Bombush. She is an associate professor at the University of British Columbia School of Nursing and program director of Master of Health Leadership and Policy seniors care. Good evening, Dr. Bombush. Hi, thank you so much for having me on today. Oh, thank you so much for joining the program. Really appreciate this. Um, Many, many people are very upset to learn of these tightening restrictions that um, loneliness is a critical issue uh, at at any time in life, but in particular, as people enter long-term care homes, uh, you know, which is where they live and to be um, without visitors except for a designated caregiver uh, or designated family member. Um, first of all, have we not learned anything from the last time that we did this? And what is the impact on people living in long-term care homes? What are, what are they feeling um, when they hear this? You know, I'm among the people that are really distressed that this is happening again, and it definitely feels like deja vu. Once again, we're seeing people who are living in long-term care homes paying the highest price with regards to social isolation during the pandemic. I think even pre-pandemic, we knew of the importance of having family and friends and their essential role in care homes. And what we've seen um, during the pandemic is extremely distressing high rates of loneliness, social isolation, but we've also seen uh, evidence of neglect that can happen when we close the doors of our care homes, particularly in Ontario and Quebec. And so it's extremely upsetting to see that uh, this is once again the decision that our public health is taking uh, to shut the doors again and really limit the people who are permitted to come in and visit our most frail elderly uh, citizens. You make such a great point there because neglect is certainly it, oftentimes it's family members who go into long-term care homes and see that their mother or their father hasn't had their diaper changed for hours is sitting in a soaking wet diaper and that can lead to skin breakdown. 
uh, loneliness and isolation, which you you mentioned, can lead to depression. And and all of those have been shown to predict worse disease outcomes in older populations. It's it's like, um, you know, it it just feels so uncaring and and unempathetic uh, that that these restrictions are being put in place once again. It absolutely does. And I mean, one of the things that really strikes me is that the public health order here in British Columbia was announced on Friday and put into place immediately on Saturday. And typically we see uh, the implementation of public health orders waiting a day or two. And so I imagine lots of people had New Year's visits planned and they didn't happen. And we know that family members are also an essential part of mealtimes in care homes, helping people make sure that they get fed and are hydrated. And at a time when we're looking even at staff shortages in the sector, we need to have those family and friends on site even more than we did before. And so it's really upsetting. And um, we know the consequences from the previous waves of what could happen to people living in care homes as a result of this. We certainly do. And I just want to mention if anybody out there has somebody that they're concerned about in a long-term care home or they're upset and distressed by this, um, these new orders, um, give us a call. The number to call is 1-877-399-9898. We'll be happy to take your call or your text. Um, You know, furthermore, depression and other mental health issues are linked to higher mortality rates in, in general to those people over the age of 65, but also people who are have gone into long term care because of dementia or confusion or urinary incontinence, um, you know, or Alzheimer's disease. Oftentimes we see their disease progress if they don't have contact with family members. I mean, family members are so critical to anyone who's in the hospital over the long term or in a long-term care home. It's like sending them off somewhere and, and never to be seen again, you know? And I mean, I just can't get past that loneliness piece, especially around the holidays. Absolutely. And I think there's been efforts to put in things like virtual visits, but they can um, be challenging for people who are cognitively impaired with dementia. Sometimes they can work, sometimes they can't. Um, So really having that in-person contact with people who know you uh, are able to engage with you socially, talk about, you know, your memories and know what kind of food you like. All of those things are really essential. And um, definitely we see loneliness and social isolation increase in any case when people move into care homes, but particularly now when you have all of the sort of outside stimuli and people coming in with their pets and their new babies and all those wonderful things that happen um, and can happen in a care home and we're not having that anymore and so um, to me it's one of the saddest legacies of this pandemic that we could have people dying because they're depressed because they're isolated when it's avoidable Oh, absolutely. And and also people don't realize that loneliness increases peripheral vascular resistance, which increases your risk of hypertension and, and cardiovascular disease. So one can go into a long-term care home and, and you know, in, in certain circumstances, live a very happy life. There's socialization there. Um, but in a pandemic, you know, everything changes and it can often, you know, 
also become a jail. Earlier on in the pandemic, when this was implemented, a lot of people made the decision to take, you know, people I know personally made the decision to take their parents out of the long-term care home that they had been admitted to and bring them back into their home. What are your thoughts on that? I think that if that's a decision that families are making and that it works for them, that's wonderful. But then we need to see the supports that individual would get in a care home, follow them home. So it shouldn't just shift to 100% of the care onto the caregiver, because then we start to see the consequences mentally and physically on that group as well. So Mm -hmm. I think there then needs to be a prioritization that there's funding in the community for them to get home support. People who are living in long-term care homes at this point in time have very, very high high needs for care. And so... um, You know, those families who have the capacity to take someone home with them uh, and care for them in the home, they also need to have supports in place. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, and and life has changed for a lot of people. And and oftentimes the decision to put somebody, a a parent uh, or a loved one into a long-term care home revolves around the busy life of, of a family who's trying to work inside and outside of the home and support their children and their parents and their parents, you know, have struggles and then a decision is made. Long-term care is the best answer. But with the pandemic, we saw a lot of people move their offices and, and we're probably going to be seeing that again. People are working inside the home. And in fact, that's been recommended. If you can actually work from home, it's recommended to do that. Um, and so it, it's kind of made it a little bit more feasible. And especially if people have means, they, but not a lot of people have the means to bring in a caregiver, additional help um, into the home. You mentioned uh, community support. Um, what do you hear from uh, the people who are living in long-term care homes about this uh, decision by governments to actually restrict visitation? I think, you know, most of what I've heard is through my research and um, on social media where I spend a fair amount of time on Twitter. And it's incredibly isolating. And you see the tweets from people who are living in care homes saying, you know what, I want my person to be able to come visit me, watch a hockey game if it's happening, you know, have a coffee, and that's not happening. And so they themselves are talking about that incredible isolation. And it can be very distressing for those residents who maybe don't have cognitive impairment and dementia to see what's happening around them. And they don't always have a safe mechanism to speak out because they can feel that it may impact their care if they speak publicly about what's happening. So we have had a lot of really brave family members talk about it. uh, And sometimes they've also experienced uh, pushback from care homes about um, what's happening. And now with the implementation again of restrictions to essential visitor status, that allows care homes to really manage who's coming in and who's not coming in. Right, right. I mean, it's just, it's just so devastating. It's, it's just, and, and, you know, even to think, you know, it's not just about, I mean, it is if their hockey games are happening, it is nice to sit and watch, you know, a hockey game with a family member or to have have a coffee. But, you know, um, people in long-term care homes also have worries, you know, that they just want to talk to somebody about something that might be bothering them, about something that might be going on in a long-term care home. What do you, I know you don't have a crystal ball. It is New Year's. <laughs> um, none of us do. But what is your prediction as to how long this is going to last, given the um, uncertainty of when Omicron will 
surge or peak. Uh, it's in a surge now when it will peak and when it will hopefully um, reduce. How long do you think um, we're going to well, be? This at this be restricted? point, you know, in British Columbia, we're looking at January 18th. But I think the bigger issue is when people get back to work on Tuesday, I want every long-term care home administrator looking at their list of residents and their list of essential visitors and making sure that everyone has at least one, if not two people who can come in and see them. Because I think the reality is we're going to see, if not COVID, we're going to have the flu or other types of outbreaks continue to happen. And we need to put an end to this, you know, sort of reactive closing of the doors. We need to have a long-term plan to ensure that residents have access to their family and friends and that care homes are stepping up to make sure that they are approving people for that status when we get to times where they do need to manage the number of people coming in a bit more. And I think that's a gap that happened over the summer and fall because I'm still hearing about residents who don't have an essential caregiver um, or a visitor right. approved. And that, I think, is a true failing here um, that we need to make sure we're focusing on as much on person-centered care as we are on public health during this time. Absolutely. I have Dave on the line uh, from Vancouver, British Columbia. Good evening, Dave. Oh, good evening. You know, just uh, 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 you know, a subject that really we should be talking more and more about. You know, uh, over the years, I've had relatives in senior homes, and at one time, I actually entertained a lot of seniors. So one of the dark, dark secrets and really sad and I imagine historians and anthropologists are going to look back on our society 100 years from now and say how could these people do this because basically mm-hmm. what they do is they put them in a warehouse and I remember talking to a lot of the hard dedicated workers talking to people that are in these places and a lot of them would have relatives that would visit them maybe once every three months maybe at Christmas maybe at Easter maybe at their birthday but otherwise well out of sight out of mind and that is so sad so pathetic but you know I must give the US credit look at some of the great jobs of some of the governors that have you know the work that they've done the dedications now you take New York as an example and, well, the former governor, Andrew Cuomo, who forced people with COVID back into senior homes. Or you take the governor from Michigan, who demanded people stay indoors. They couldn't cut their lawn. They couldn't paint their house. They couldn't even buy tomato seed. Or what about wonderful Governor Newsom down there in California? You know, people, you don't go into restaurants. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm well, no mask. Well, I can do it because I'm Governor Newsom. You're not. Yeah, you know it's kind of like right. Do Sometimes the rules say. aren't made for everybody. <laughs> but you know, Ab- God bless the people in these homes. Unfortunately, and the term and it's rightfully used. They are warehoused. And for those people that don't visit their relatives, you know, the, the people that raise them, what are their grandkids? parents, whatever, and their parents, God, you know, shame on you. Shame on you. That's the only word I can use for you, for these people. Exactly. Thanks so much for the call, Dave.
Dr. Jennifer Bombush is my guest. She's the Associate Professor at UBC School of Nursing and Program Director of Master of Health Leadership and Policy Seniors Care. And we are talking about the restrictions put upon seniors who are living in long-term care homes. I, I love your suggestion, Dr. Bombush, that every single long-term care administrator needs to go through their list of residents and ensure that everybody has a dedicated uh, visitor that can come and see them, uh, help them out. But do you think we could have done this um, in a in a different way? Do you think we could have continued to have visitors and, and implemented a mitigation strategy of, oh, of, of KN95 masks and a health screening yeah. every day and um, hand washing? I think, yeah. you know, yeah. we hear all about our layers of protection all the time. And you know, mm-hmm. they need to be applied in this situation, too. So having rapid testing for everybody entering long-term care homes, prioritizing staff for boosters, making sure people have appropriate personal protective equipment, air filtration, all of these, you know, things that we've learned about over the past 18 months that work and are effective, we need to have them, and we should have had them in place already, um, knowing that we were going to have subsequent waves of covid happening in our care homes. And, and do you think that there just was no preparation? There, were, there was no planning in terms of let's get, you know, let's look at the ventilation systems, HEPA filters, air scrubbers. Let's ensure that we have rapid testing, health screening apps, KN95 masks for, for residents and visitors and, um, care, and uh, caregivers who are employed there. I mean, I know one of the problems was, and this is another problem, was that caregivers were working in between different care homes because nobody would give them a full-time job because they didn't want to pay benefits. Um, and so yep. do you think that they, they just dropped the ball on it? And it's like, okay, we don't have that ready, so let's just do this. I, I think that long-term care is always an afterthought in our healthcare system. And so we saw a lot of political activity uh, in the early ways when we had, you know, thousands of tragic deaths among residents in this sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think some of that momentum has declined over time. And so, you know, there's no one holding people accountable to get these things done. Mm-hmm. In British Columbia, we're fortunate. We have an excellent uh, seniors advocate office. And I mean, they mm-hmm. are doing their best. But a lot of provinces and territories don't have an independent office like we do. And so the push, I don't think, has really been there. Um, So, yes, we have the ideas and now we need the funding uh, to go behind it. And, you know, we can't turn back the clock, but we can certainly focus on putting these practices into place now. Absolutely. And we really need a logistical, systematic, operational approach that is across the board, the same system for everybody through and through with the mitigation strategies that have been proven to work. You're you're absolutely correct. We've learned so much about COVID uh, in the last 20 months, and it's time that we actually um, be prepared uh, for the next variant because it is likely to come out of another unvaccinated country. Dr. Jennifer Bombush, thank you so much for your fabulous work and for joining the program tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. You're very welcome. We will get you back after January 18th. <laughs> anyway, see where see where we are at Great. then. Yes. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk.
Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. As you know, I'm a registered nurse, and the fight against this virus has now lasted more than a year and is expected to be with us for a forcible future. This is creating intense pressure on the exhausted healthcare workforce, especially frontline nurses. It has had an impact on both their personal and professional lives. Joining me on the line is Paula Levicki. She is a university and college educator. She's also a registered nurse. She has a master's degree in counseling and boasts 45 years experience as an RN who has worked in the North and in many places in British Columbia. She has also taken students to Namibia, Africa, and also to the Philippines. Good evening, Paula. Good evening, and thank you for having me on. Well, thank you so much for joining me. That's quite a CV that you have. Um, so it, it's very, very tough out there. We, we already know about staffing shortages. We know nurses are, are worried. They're worried about their patients. They're worried about their families. They're worried about their parents. They're worried about their kids. Uh, they are worried about getting sick themselves. They're worried about their colleagues. Uh, they are working short staff. The things seem to be changing a lot in terms of coronavirus, but it also seems to be changing for the nurses where even to get appropriate PPE, they now need to have approval. Um, 20, 22 months into this, how, just how much can nurses take and, and just how stressed are they? Well, I've been uh, communicating with a lot of nurses over my last little while but especially in the last three days and they can't take much more and to be quite honest they feel that um, the media is failing them the government is failing them and the leadership in both nursing in the union the professional bodies and especially in the health authorities are all failing them they don't feel that they are being heard and it's like a war zone out there, and they are the front line fighting this war, and nobody is helping them. Yeah, and you know, little thing, early on in the pandemic, I, I, I have so many thoughts in my head right now, but early on in the pandemic, I remember hearing about from a nurse, and she said that the nurse manager had locked up the masks in their office, and they could see the masks, and none of the nurses had masks, Yes. And she called the nurse manager, and the nurse manager said, no, you can't have those masks. Well, that particular nurse was persistent and went on and called the hospital supervisor, and they did, in fact, get the masks for the nurses. They had patients who were being admitted um, on aerosolized medications, um, and, you know, they were at great, great risk. Nurses have experienced bruises and skin damages caused by wearing masks. They have mask meat mask knee, which is kind of a, a form of acne that, that appears on the faces of people who are sensitive to nurses. They, they have experienced dehydration as not being able to, you know, take a break, get some water, excessive heat as a result of wearing the protective gear for so many long hours. These are just some of the few problems that come to mind, not to mention the, the fact that it's really hard for nurses to speak out. And I'm, and I'm so grateful that you're on because administrators and unions silence them. They don't want them to speak out. They can get into trouble. They need to have approval before they're able to come and actually speak to the media. And we need to hear what's going on. I, I saw a situation on Twitter um, where a patient, a nurse had said that her patient was unvaccinated, 39 weeks pregnant, COVID positive. The baby had fetal demise and was, you know, obviously a stillbirth. 
you know, um, just how much can nurses take, especially when there are so many unvaccinated patients in the hospital? And, and is that the case? That's what we hear in yes. the media. Yes. And in fact, uh, just a few days ago, I heard from a respiratory technologist who says that um, she, as soon as they get one intubated, they have another one crashing and 80 to 85% or more are all unvaccinated patients and that they come in and they, um, they're angry at the staff, the nurses for uh, taking care of them and giving them the care that they need. And they demand, demand unsafe uh, treatment like ivermectin and other things that they know for a fact will not help them. And, um, and after they are so sick and they're starting to be intubated, then they're, they're, they're asking for vaccines. But of course, at that time, it's too late. And um, the, a lot of the ICUs are so full that they are sending these people that are so ill that should be ICU patients are uh, going out to the, to the units. And the nurses out there are already overworked and understaffed and and can't cope with it and um, they're often working so short-staffed and they don't have as you already said they don't have the proper PPE they don't have N95 and um, a lot of the public don't realize that N95s need to be fitted specifically to each nurse it's like Mm -hmm. wearing a pair Mm -hmm. of shoes we all don't have the same size chin or faces or anything like that and the health authorities are not only not getting them the N95s that they need they are also not appropriately fitting them and getting them the equipment they need right and even the KN95 masks they've actually been tasked with wearing surgical masks which um, when when we have airborne viruses that are highly, highly transmissible, like the Omicron, a uh, surgical mask just is not going to cut it because it just doesn't have the tight fit to the face. Um, no. and, and people, nurses can't even bring in their, I, I understand they can't even bring in their own KN95 mask. Now, you mentioned the N95 mask, which you have to be fitted for. It's size, mine's 1860S. I know my size. I've been fitted for it. I'm fortunate in that regard. Um, but you know, nurses are going in and, and, and now, I mean, they're exhausted, you know, and in mm-hmm. the time of any disaster, be it war, floods or pandemics, nurses are always at the front line. They are caring for the patients with compassion. They're uh, implementing their medical expertise. They are working hard 12 hour shifts. They can. And, and, you know, the other thing is they haven't actually gotten we've seen other industries offer the tech industry, for example, um, insurance industries, logistic industries offer sign-on bonuses, big, big money. You know, the, the salaries have mm-hmm. increased tenfold, r- dramatically, but not for nurses. No, no, they haven't. And they don't get, they're called back in on all of their days off. They're called in on their holidays. There was just uh, a memo that went out by Vancouver Island Health Authority saying that they were going to start mandating nurses to come in on their day, days off and their holidays even though they themselves, the managers, were left going off on holidays themselves, leaving their, their staff so short-staffed, and, um, and they just left. I've heard this over and over again, that they tell them, just keep the patients alive. 
In other words, keep them breathing. But how do you do that when you have one nurse up to nine patients that are all very, very ill? How can one nurse take care of that many people and keep them safe? They can't. And so, right. like, there's going to be increased mortality. And this is what the general public needs to know is death rates are going to go up not just in the COVID patients, but in everybody, because nurses cannot possibly take care of that many people and maintain the standards of nursing practice. You're, you're right. And, you know, before the pandemic, the acuity in the hospitals was already at an all-time high. But when you take patients who need to be in a step-down unit or need to be in an intensive care, and then they are put onto the wards, the general medical surgical ward or the orthopedic ward or pediatric ward, uh, you actually raise that acuity level that much more. And nurses put themselves at risk to save the lives of others. Every single day going into work, understanding I could get COVID today because I'm exposed to patients who have COVID and especially now with this new variant, Omicron, how does that affect nurses psychologically? Well, obviously, Maureen, it's it's incredibly stressful because they don't want to take COVID home to their family members. And I talked to one nurse that said, you know, like, they weren't allowed, they were supposed to uh, wear their their own personal clothes to work and home from work. And, um, you know, like, how how does that affect? Like, I know nurses that actually rented an apartment so that they wouldn't take COVID home to their their mm-hmm. little children at home. And and that they, they get changed in their garages and they have showers before even going into their houses to try and keep their, their children and their family safe. I also know of people, nurses that were sleeping in their, in their campers so that they wouldn't bring COVID into their, their homes. It is a very, very difficult situation because morally and ethically, they know if they don't show up, there's, there's not going to be care for those patients on that particular shift. And so uh-huh. they're torn between caring for their patients and trying to keep their own family safe. Paula Laveki is my guest. She's a registered nurse who is so graciously joining the program tonight to talk about what life is like on the front lines. Paula, nurses are leaving in droves if they can. They're often the principal breadwinner in a family, uh, especially in a pandemic where maybe their partners have lost their jobs. Um, But nurses are stressed. They are burnt out. They are struggling personally and psychologically. They're often asked to work long hours. They're not provided with the appropriate um, PPE, a KN95 mask in it for a a virus that is airborne. Um, What, what is it? I mean, they, they can't catch a break and oftentimes they can't even get a break because they are run off their feet. As you say, short staffed, high acuity in the hospitals. What do you suggest um, we can do for them? Because they, they just can't seem to win this. And I really don't know how somebody can work at the bedside for that length of time and, um, and carry on under such undue stress. Yeah, well, we need to start valuing them more. Uh, police just got uh, 
uh, $20,000 uh, sign-on bonuses. And so maybe we need to think about that for nurses. But also we need to start valuing them and retaining the experienced nurses. They need to be given the credit that they uh, of the experience. They, they really, the whole healthcare system uh, lies at their shoulders. And so we need to retain them and hang on to them. And... Um, and have less staff turnover and more retention. And so they need to be valued. We need to educate more. I mean, this has been a wave coming for over 30 years. They knew there was going to be a shortage of nurses because there was going to be so many baby boomers uh, retiring. And the government didn't anticipate this or uh, make sure that more nurses were, were educated. So that needs to be taken into consideration too. And, um, so better, better mental health care for nurses, more money, more um, when they're deployed to other units. You already men- mentioned how, how stressful that is to, if you were an OR nurse and you're sent to a pediatric floor or if you're a pediatric nurse and you're sent to a medical floor. It is like being given a whole new expertise and you're not even uh, educated in that area. Like It's like being a taxi cab driver and then being put in to, uh, to a fly uh, a jumbo jet. I mean, they're just so different and it's so stressful. And I've seen nurses in tears being deployed. So they need, if they're going to get deployed, they, they need more money to do that. And um, also like nights, there needs to be a higher differential for nights so that people are willing, mm-hmm. nurses are willing to work more nights. There needs to be more staffing hired um, more, um, perhaps we need to even um, bring in vaccinated family members to feed people and to to change beds and to provide companionship because nurses are so busy they cannot do that for family members. Maybe the, yeah. I know over the years that I've had quite a few excellent students who are in uh, the armed forces. So we need to have more um, armed forces nurses brought into hospitals and also paramedics and maybe more agency nurses like, and maybe, maybe some of the administrators need to take a, a rotation on the units. They could also help feed and, uh, change beds and do all kinds of things. Like we need a made in Canada solution for this and outside yeah, the absolutely. box thinkers because we do this, the system that we are doing right now and what we were doing to nurses is like the canary in the coal mines. When the canary dies, the whole system dies and we're on the verge of a complete collapse of our healthcare system if we're not taken seriously. Right. And, you know, I've heard of uh, the travel nurses get paid tremendously. And I've heard of basically travel nurses are trading places. They're getting $5,000 a week um, and, you know, and they're taking these opportunities and they're just going to another town where they're short staffed and they're basically just trading places. So maybe all nurses need to become travel nurses. But I think the public, we have a a big job to educate the public um, on vaccines. Paula Lewicki, thank you so much for your expertise and your contribution to the program. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for for having me on and best of luck. And thank you for, for telling everybody how it is out there for nurses. Thank you. 
It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. And I think of the dear late Betty White. I think this has so many great one-liners, but this is perhaps her best. Why do people say grow some balls? Balls are weak and sensitive. If you want to be tough, grow a vagina. Those things can take a pounding. <laughs> you got to love her. Anyway, which is a perfect segue into my neck into this segment. COVID is an endothelial dysfunction. I'm going to combine my medical nursing background and knowledge of science with um, some, with my, (laughs) I forget. Anyway, (laughs) oh well. COVID is an endothelial dysfunction. And the endothelium is a thin membrane that lines the inside of your heart and blood vessels. And endothelial cells release substances that control the vascular relaxation and contraction, as well as enzymes that control blood clotting, immune function, and platelet. Platelets are a colorless substance that are found in the blood um, that also have to do with clotting function um, and adhesions. It is likely that endothelite endotheliitis, endothelial injury, endothelial cell dysfunction, and impaired microcirculatory function in different vascular beds contributes markedly to the life-threatening complications that we have seen of COVID-19, such as venous thromboembolic disease and multiple organ involvement or multi-system failure. And so the small arteries of the heart can get impacted in the same way that the penile blood vessels can also get impacted. So if you are, I mean, I have said for so many reasons, and this has not been one of them, (laughs) that I do not want to get COVID for so many reasons. I don't want to stop my life. I don't want to get a risk of long haul COVID symptoms. But if I were a guy, I would actually think, I don't want to get COVID because I don't want to get impotence. I don't want to have erectile dysfunction because it's likely that a lot of guys already experience some degree of that. But this can actually, according to a recent very small study, um, this can actually be long lasting and it can be severe, absolutely severe impotence. So nothing, just not flaccid, nothing, zero. So, which is why I have gotten three shots and and I didn't get them all in one place either. I mean, I was like, I'm getting, I'm getting a shot in Boston. I had an opportunity to be there. I'm getting a third shot in Arkansas. I ha- I was there as well, uh, doing some traveling for work. And uh, so I have three shots. I wear KN95 mask. Oftentimes I have purchased them myself. I have, given up other things to purchase those KN95 masks from the good mask company, um, on Amazon or from work. I have been fortunately provided them. I have been tested. Uh, somebody wrote on Twitter today, how many times have you been tested? I mean, it's too many to count. I could, I could do some math, but you know, there were months and months where I was tested three to five times a week. So, I mean, I've had so many tests, but I also limit my activities. I do not mingle with the public. I do not go into restaurants. I mean, I have, I've gone in three or four times, um, over the last 22 months, but it is not something. And I, and I will say, you know, I will only eat outdoors. We know that 
COVID is less transmissible outdoors and I will stick to outdoor activities. I don't go to people's houses. I will walk with friends out, outside. I will do physical activities outside, but I will not uh, go indoors. I do not go to any events. So I'm extremely careful because I don't want to get to COVID. And so I have looked at the science. I have, uh, you know, if something I didn't understand, I looked into it. Um, but guys, this is a serious issue. This is one more compelling reason to get a COVID-19 vaccine and or mask up, stay home, limit your activities, limit people that you hang with, make sure people that you are seeing aren't sick, don't have any symptoms because there is suspicion in the medical community that the coronavirus could make it hard to perform in the bedroom. And you know what? I know a lot of you are already having problems already. <laughs> um, I hear about it. I, ha I have a clinical practice that's virtually, uh, it's all virtual now especially anything to do with uh, sexual health or sexless marriage or arousal issues, desire issues, and erectile dysfunction issues. So I know there are already issues, big issues out there. Uh, and, you know, we know that the coronavirus infection is known to damage blood vessels and the vessels that supply blood to the penis appear are no exception. You know, people don't realize that erection is all about blood flow. And, you know, I see so many patients, so many guys in my clinical practice who have maybe had prostate surgery or um, just, you know, have erectile dysfunction in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, no decade. It does not discriminate. And, you know, it is devastating to somebody's self-esteem, somebody's masculinity, sense of themselves. It can impact the relationship. Uh, it can make people feel uh, upset about themselves, feel like there's something wrong with them. Uh, but you know what? Oftentimes they'll come and see me after they have tried one of the PD-5 inhibitors and they get the significant side effects that they don't like. And, and so there are other ways to treat erectile dysfunction. You don't have to go straight to medication. Oftentimes people love to go to medication immediately instead of doing the hard work. And this is the time of year that you make the decision that you're going to do the hard work. You're actually going to do the things that are going to help you to live a healthier life. This is the time to reflect. And most of you should be at home now um, reflecting. There's lots of time to do that and to think about that because it's not about living a long life, but it's about living a quality life. And that means in and outside of the bedroom as well. You know, so staying physically fit is important, but also um, ensuring that you don't do anything that is preventive uh, to damage your blood vessels. Um, you know, there have been, according to some researchers, there have been coronavirus particles use, found in penile tissue samples taken from some patients who uh, had COVID-19 in the past who became impotent after their infection. And let me tell you something, this infection, I cannot, I, I, I should write it down one day, all of the sequelae, all of the issues that I, of patients that I know who have suffered long haul symptoms after getting COVID. Now, many, many people, you know, have symptoms, especially Omicron three to five days, they get better. It is a mild cold. Um, some people lasted 10, 12 days, but they have gotten better. But many people have described to me things that have occurred to them 
uh, that have happened after having had coronavirus that they never had before. Like somebody ended up getting arthritis in their hands. They were in a job where they use their hands quite significantly. Somebody else I know um, had was in very good health, had low blood pressure. I, I see this a lot, but um, you know, it's from the endothelial damage or, or dysfunction as a result of coronavirus. But this person, late 40s, has had to go on cardiac meds. Uh, so there are so many um, risks. You know, people are taking their, their it, it may not be their life, but it's their health in their hands. And so, it, you know, oftentimes I, I was talking to somebody recently on the phone. And I said that, you know, I, I have this weight management or nutrition plan. I call it the all-in diet. I actually uh, developed it be, based on men who came in with erectile dysfunction and they were overweight um, or heavy set, as I like to say. Um, and they, you know, were sedentary. They had high blood pressure. They were kind of depressed. You don't know if it's from the ED or from life in general or whatever, but you know, so I developed this low glycemic index nutrition plan, high protein, you know, to actually help people to lose weight. And I said, you know, to be honest with you, men are so much more successful at losing weight, at going on this program, this plan than women. And it's because men are so motivated or much more motivated to buy sex. It's, it's a great motivator. And, you know, men, I've had tremendous success with men who have experienced erectile dysfunction and who are a bit overweight. They might have high blood sugars. They might have hypertension. They may be sedentary. They have a lot of abdominal weight and, you know, they just get a, a whole new lease on life. And so, uh, you know, if you're, and I, and I, I'm, not trying to convince any, I am, I am, I'm trying to convince you to get a vaccine, <laughs> but it might be one or two of you. That's it. I, I know I have absolutely no influence, but you know, cause I was just stunned at the numbers of coronavirus cases, the Omicron cases just soaring, but the vaccination rates have basically stayed the same, which is just shocking. But I thought, well, you know what, this could be one reason to potentially talk somebody into, and into getting a vaccine. If it'll talk you into it, give me a call. The number to call is 1-877-399-9898. If you have any other questions as well, feel free to give me a call or shoot me a text. Um, but it's very important, you know, blood vessels, coronavirus damages blood vessels and you have blood vessels in your penis and it's the blood flow that actually, um, actually makes you hard basically. And so if the blood doesn't flow, the hardness doesn't happen. The blood vessels themselves actually malfunction and they're not able to provide enough blood to enter your penis for an erection. And that can lead to a very dissatisfied relationship. It can actually lead to low self-esteem, but the same damage that occurs in the penis occurs is what damages your lungs, your kidneys, your brain of people who have COVID-19. You know, it, it's just amazing to me that people don't believe that COVID exists. Uh, they think people are making it up. There's some idea that there's going to be, um, you know, we're, we're going to be injected with a microchip if you get the vaccine. But I mean, this is very, very early, early research and people have been severely ill with COVID-19 and spent weeks in the hospital before recovering. But 
I mean, who wants to take a chance with their penis, really? Uh, but who want, ultimately, who wants to take a chance with their health? Because um, this is a significant health issue. So if you are considering, if you're on the fence <laughs> about getting a vaccine, I just thought that maybe, potentially, if you could prevent erectile dysfunction, and a lot of men get this, but you don't want to do something that is preventive and preventive by a vaccine. And a vaccine is not going to prevent you from getting COVID-19 or Omicron or Delta. What it is going to do, it's going to reduce your burden of disease and decrease your risk of hospitalization significantly. And also um, it results in way, way, way less death. So if you want to live, if you want to be looking at the grass from up above instead of from down below, it might be a good idea to speak to your doctor about getting the vaccine for COVID-19. You know, and the more people, I think we need a tremendously creative education program. We need to increase access to vaccines for people in rural areas and for people in um, third world countries and for places where people don't have access to vaccines. Uh, but we need to just do a much better job of ending the politicization. And that could be one of my New Year's resolutions <laughs> or my New Year's wish, I guess. Um, but we need to, you know, we've, we've created a tremendously deep wedge uh, politically around uh, COVID-19. And it's just such a shame because we're going to be living like this for the foreseeable future. Uh, I mean, you, I've gotten used to it, you know, there, and, and in some ways, certain things are better in my life as a result of it. I mean, would I rather be free and not wearing a mask and being able to do presentations again and, and go to parties? Of course I would, you know, but this is the way it is. I'm not willing to risk my health, but I am willing to do whatever it takes to prevent getting COVID-19. New Year's resolutions. I'm going to read the top 10. Uh, Leo, have you got any? One or two? Any resolutions you thought about? Uh, I haven't read yours. No, but I, I mean, all mine are, are very like, I just want to be a, a, a person that's just, I want to be more brave next year. And that's like, all on oh, the emotional you know, you side. Brave. Yes. Oh, that's so great. I love that one. I want to be less brave. <laughs> I, I need um, to take so more. Good, Leo. I need to take more shots. <laughs> okay. That's not drinking that's very though. Good. No, no, exactly. I love that one. That is excellent. And you know, knowing you, like I just think that's such a great one. Yeah. yeah. Well, good luck with that. The way to achieve that is like getting, I wish you the best of luck, but you got to stay positive, you know, and, and make, um, you know, little changes. Don't make big, quick changes. So have gradual changes and then like build on your successes as you carry on, um, becoming more brave, taking more shots. Yeah. I, I totally agree. The more baskets you take, the more likely, or the more shots you take, the more baskets you're likely to get. Right. That's pretty good. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll try yeah, and very, embrace very that. Good, and, very uh, good. Yeah. Yeah. That's... Okay. Well, we're going to check in with you on a monthly <laughs> basis. <laughs> yeah, you're doing. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll be here. Okay. Okay. okay I can. Show. Okay. All right. Well, um, you know, I'll, mine is um, spend less money. Okay. I'm terrible. <laughs> 
So I am, I'm spending less money. I'm not paying for other people anymore. And in fact, I did that. Um, one, I, I didn't do it. A couple of people, you know, anyway, I always pay and I'm not going to do that. And that will result in my saving more money. Um, so I'm going to spend less money this year, but you know, oftentimes people will be like, Oh, can you tell me where I can get such and such? And I'm like, yeah, I'll just get it for you. You know, and they're like, okay, no problem. Anyway, so I'm not doing that anymore and I'm going to spend less money. I'm going to also, uh, uh, you know, packed on the little few pounds during the pandemic and the, the holiday pandemic. And, uh, me and 5 billion other people are going to make that, um, <clears throat> as their, New Year's resolution, in addition to exercising more, which is the number one for people, losing weight is number two, getting organized is number three, learning a new skill or hobby is number four, living life to the fullest. That's going to be hard this year. Um, although I do, I am hopeful about the pandemic. Let's hope. Um, uh, save more money, spend less money, quit smoking, spend more time with family and friends, travel more and read more. So those are, are some of the uh, most popular, those are the 10 most popular resolutions. Difficult to to keep them, about 46% of people who make New Year's resolutions are successful. And so um, I think it's, you know, do one or two. Don't like, mine is like, spend less money, save more money. That's two right there. That's it. I'll let you know how I'm going to do. I'm also, I've never done this before, but I did, maybe you did, got an air fryer for Christmas. And so <laughs> the new air fryer, we are not air frying saltines, okay? Just not doing it and adding cheese and um, onions to it. No, not having that. So um, also, but I, I would like for everybody to realize this, you know, out with the old and in with the new, the old in terms of the coronavirus and the pandemic, it, you know, it does spread by droplet, but it's mainly airborne transmission. Distancing's out, droplet, thoughts about droplet is out. So the, you know, the, therefore the distancing is out. Plexiglass is out. Surgical or cloth masks are also out. In with the new, it's airborne. Ventilation, open the windows, upgrade your ventilation system. Uh, HEPA filters, get a, uh, a heater for your deck and invite people over that way. Air scrubbers for inside your house and, and KN95 masks. So embrace the change our species adapts so that we can survive. Anyway, wishing you all the very happiest of, um, of, of new year's this year, really. I know it's been tough for so many people and you know what, it's, it's not easy for anybody and everybody has been affected in different ways. And Leo, uh, really thanks for all your great work this year. Really appreciated it. And, um, looking forward to the, uh, 2021 and, and see what that brings for all of us. You can head on over to my website, maureenmcgrath.com. And remember when you stumble on this gravel road of life, make it part of your dance. And, um, you know, just let's be understanding and, and compassionate and empathic to everybody. Here's to 2022. Let's hope for this, that this year is our year. All right. Take care until next week. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.